What do you say about Jason Moore? He's contributed, I think, so much to the Marxist scholarly discourse in the past few years. But I just want to say two things that I think are very, very important about Moore's work and have been very important to me as well. And the first one is that this conference here is about real abstraction. And sure enough, if you read Moore's signature work, Capitalism, the Web of Life, he uses the term real abstraction. And for Moore, the way he uses the term real abstraction is he characterizes the man or the the nature-society binary uh, as being a real abstraction. And what he means by that is that in our current metaphysics, it's very common, right, to imagine that there's nature, right, which is sort of totalistic, external, non-human entity, and then there are individuals endowed with some sort of unique subjective capacity. And this is how we tend to think of the world. And we can trace the lineage of this through, you know, uh, Descartes, uh, Kant, etc. It's transitive. But for more, in fact, this division is historical division. These concepts are historical concepts. And this binary really develops and calcifies in the context of the foundation of capitalism. And we see with capitalism in particular that it's, it's remarkable penchant for productivity, which of course is indissociable from its capacity to generate value, is based on the appropriation of mass quantities of use values as never before. So what capitalism requires is a sort of passivized externality in the form of nature. And so it's for this reason that this notion, this division between nature and society or society and nature sets in at that point. So we have here the division between commodified labor power or the bourgeois And on the other hand, sort of the use values, which are appropriated to permit the reproduction of capital. This conference here is about real abstraction. And um, I think in in a major way, Moore has contributed to revealing some of the operative abstractions, capitalist abstractions, which are still common within Marxist eco-socialist discourses. He's criticized John Bellamy Foster and other eco-socialists, for example, for using these terms uncritically, like nature and society without interrogating their origin. So that's very important. But I think one of the real achievements of Moore's work is that he acknowledges that correlationism, dualism, the thinking of the commodity structure, however you call it, is a feature, a material feature of our current society, a real abstraction, if you will. But he also suggests a direction behind it towards what he calls the real relational movements of nature as a whole. So we see in his work a kind of bridging of some of these cutting edge movements in philosophy that have dealt with themes like ontology with real abstraction. I think there's a great power and value to that. So sorry, I didn't mean to hold you up too much, Jason. I just wanted to uh, highlight those points, which I think are significant. So I'm going to read off the biography he provided, and then I'm going to finally let him begin. Jason W. Moore is an environmental historian and historical geographer at Binghamton University, where he's professor of sociology. He is author or editor, most recently, of Capitalism in the Web of Life, Verso 2015, Anthropocene or Capitalocene, Nature, History, and the Crisis of Capitalism, and with Raj Patal, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. He can be reached at jwmore at binghampton.edu. And he is here to talk about the modern dangerous words, man, nature, and the worldwide class struggle. Thank you, Jason. Please begin. Thanks, Conrad. And that was such a gracious introduction. And I'm uh, so, so honored and grateful to be a part of this conversation. And I'm grateful to you and Paul and everyone who's put the work into this conference to advance this discussion of real abstraction, because in my view, it is fundamental to the ideological front of the worldwide class struggle that we are in the midst of, especially as we see the planetary inferno, no longer a metaphor, unfolding 
right before our eyes. So the question for me always is, what is the anti-imperialist and proletarian standpoint for planetary justice that goes beyond the imperial conceit of man and nature? And I'll be talking quite a bit about this today, but I wanted to sound my gratitude for that. My Freudian slip, and I almost corrected it, was that uh, I said the modern dangerous words rather than the most dangerous words. But I think that actually worked better. And so I didn't go and try to connect it. So as we think about the world around us and planetary politics, I want to take us back to the iconic 1968 Earthrise photograph. And you can keep this in mind as I talk. I might flip back to to that here and there, but I wanted to just get that set in your mind. It adorns the cover famously of the Whole Earth Catalog from 1968, published by Stuart Brand, who was, not coincidentally, a student of Paul Ehrlich, uh, author of the famous The Population Bomb from 1968, which is indeed part of this story. But I want to begin with a great observation from Raymond Williams, the novelist and social theorist who once opined that nature is, in his words, perhaps the most complex word in the language. And as he points out, it emerges in its modern sense at the same time as words like society, European, civilization, right between the years 1550 and 1700, which was also the moment of capitalism's great productivist turn, its response to the great climate crisis of that era, in part driven by the ecocidal and genocidal disaster of the invasions of the New World after 1492, I want to ask, is nature not only the most complex word, but perhaps also the most dangerous? I would say that few ideas in modern thought fuse the dystopian and utopian more starkly than nature in the uppercase. So nature and nature in this sense is an aphrodisiac, a hope, a dream. It is also a waking nightmare. It is an instrument of imperial domination a midwife to endless accumulation and the cheapening of planetary life. Nature is far more than a word, an idea, an innocent description. It is a lever of modern thought, power, and profit. It is a ruling abstraction. So no image in recent world history captures this dystopian utopian dissonance better than one of modern environmentalism's iconic photographs, this Earthrise photograph. Earthrise was snapped on Christmas Eve 1968 from Apollo 8's lunar orbit, and it quickly became the most influential environmental photograph ever taken. Together with 1972's Blue Marble, the images were widely published in the anglophonic media and elsewhere, and quickly embraced not just by granola-eating, sandal-wearing environmentalists, but also by the most powerful capitalists in the world's most powerful country. Almost immediately, Earthrise and then Blue Marble adorned the hallways of corporate offices and the covers of major magazines like Life and Time and many others. Grassroots and corporate environmentalists seemed to agree. Earthrise captured the essence of a fragile oasis, encouraged a far-reaching holism, and inspired modern environmentalism. By the way, we can question each of these, but they are widely believed, and that's part of the ideological assessment that we need to make. And just 16 months later, the first Earth Day in April 1970 seemed to verify this new green consensus. So Earthrise 
for sure, encouraged a new environmental imaginary. It envisioned a world free of conflict between humans, inspired by the dream of species solidarity, and pursuing, at least on the surface, a techno-egalitarianism of the sort dramatized in Star Trek. So here was a utopian vision untroubled by environmental, economic, and above all, political history. Environmental problems were, in this scheme of things, problems of management and technology, not modernity's contradictions of power, profit, and life. Little has changed, unfortunately, over the past half century. In the 70s, the problem was narrated as the challenge of spaceship Earth. Today, it is the Anthropocene, old wine, new bottles. And Earthrise is so interwoven with the post-1968 environmental utopianism and its space race hagiography that any mention of its dystopian character is practically a thought crime. So, but we ignore this dystopian reality at our peril. Earthrise came from a doomsday device. That's not a metaphor. American imperial strategy from Truman to Reagan and indeed beyond prioritized first strike nuclear capacity. The space program was fundamental to that. Like the age of discovery centuries before, space exploration was militarized at its birth. By the early 1950s, former Nazi Werner von Braun, now working for the Americans upon the defeat of his employer, conceptualized an orbital space station equipped with nukes. If you've ever seen the movie 2001, that is an homage to Werner von Braun's illustrations and conceptualizations. So celebrated as a triumph of the human spirit, the space program was practically developed as the extraplanetary infrastructure of American nuclear hegemony. Textbooks frame the American panic after the Soviet launching of Sputnik in 1957 as a fear of falling behind in math, science, and engineering. But the reality was somewhat darker. Sputnik was part of a mad rush to develop nuclear weapons parity with the United States, which had committed itself to first strike capacities. Just two months earlier, in August 1957, the Soviets had successfully tested the, the first ICBM, the R-7, which would propel Sputnik into orbit. That same year, the U.S. was testing its ICBM, the Atlas rockets. Both missiles would carry the first humans into space, starting with Yuri Gagarin in 1961. That those rockets were first developed with slave labor under the Nazi V2 program strikes me as something more than a metaphorical footnote to the story. Both the V2 and later the Saturn V rockets, the ones that would carry the American astronauts to the moon, were developed under von Braun's leadership. The technospace fantasy was fundamental to American and, and indeed global culture in this moment. It was framed in terms of manifest destiny, which was America's civilizing project that tamed the wilderness and Americanized its inhabitants, both from arguably the most influential American historian, Frederick Jackson Turner. John F. Kennedy's famous moon speech in 62 put it clearly, the American conquest of space would mobilize, in his words, the best of all mankind. The space race as missile race was easy to miss then as now, but the visual production of the Earth as planetary nature, part of the production of this ruling abstraction appropriate to neoliberal times, this production of the Earth as planetary nature as a place of wholeness and potential harmony masked an imperial project that threatened Armageddon, again, then as now. So no wonder it's often easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. 
So, of course, Earthrise did not invent nature in 1968 and, in fact, had relatively little to do with the emergence of what we call environmentalism, but it was fundamental to the emergence of a new environmental imaginary. So here, nature, with again, with a deliberate uppercase, should not be confused with the web of life, all-encompassing, breathtakingly diverse. Capitalism is unique in transforming a distinction between humans and the rest of nature, a distinction into a dualism, a hard and fast intellectual and indeed geocultural divide translated into profit-driven policies of socio-ecological change. So the power of capitalism's ruling abstractions is such that even most Marxists do not see two pivotally decisive and entangled ideological projects and realities unfolding under the sign of man versus nature, again in the uppercase. So one of these is that man and nature cohered through specific successive civilizing projects from the Iberians in the 16th and 17th century all the way to Truman's point for developmentalism, all the way in part to today's sustainability discourse and its neoliberal counterpoint, two sides of the same coin, that this man and nature is not about human beings distinguished from extra human webs of life. Nature, as Claudia von Verhoff quips, is everything that the bourgeoisie does not want to pay for. Thus, the extremely tight historical connection between bourgeois naturalism, which is what even most Marxists are invoking when they talk about nature, and imperial, racist, and sexist ideology and praxis, ultimately and intimately connected to the class dynamics of super-exploitation. So that's a first dynamic. The second ideological reality is even more obscure and hard to really get at. Indeed, I can find no reference to it at all in the vast Marxist and radical literature on capitalism's ecologies. In this, man and nature are not merely ideological claims floating out there in the ether. They're not prefabricated, inherited from another mode of production. Rather, they are emergent and developing basic principles of bourgeois planetary management. In short, man and nature is a management philosophy and praxis. Man and nature, in this sense, constitute an operating system, the software for the imperialist bourgeoisie's structures of planetary management. Even before the Cartesian dualism of thinking and doing, Europe's empires set about organizing a planetary division of labor that was far more than core and periphery, far more than town and country. It was a management philosophy of developing a qualitative material break between intellectual and manual labor. Enter Son Redel. Son Redel's insights onto the development of class society and its organization of mental and manual labor and the abstractions that go with it can, in this regard, be joined to Harry Braverman's famous class struggle theory of management and what he called the separation of conception from execution as an ongoing historical project of management and class war. This is what people talk about when they utter the word Fordism. So linking these two moments, that is Son Redel and Braverman's sense of the mental manual division of labor, are the ruling abstractions of the civilizing project, which connect the necessary conditions of systemic reproduction with the geographical and geocultural conditions of firm level profit maximization. So to connect the point of production and the point of world accumulation requires that we deal with geoculture and geopolitical power. Now, this post-1968 reinvention of nature that we're encountering with Earthrise 
marked the epical maturation of a planetary management praxis that emerged much, much earlier with the transatlantic productivist turn of the long 17th century between 1550 and 1700. So not for nothing, this was precisely the world historical moment long before Maltus that Richard Grove identifies as the origins of Western environmentalism, which is to say the origins of modern resource management. So in this light, it should come as no surprise that the maturing of the environmental imaginary after 1968 was punctuated by the 1972 publication of The Limits to Growth, one of the most influential environmentalist texts of all time. And its systems dynamic model was developed where? At MIT's Sloan School of Management. It is, in essence, a management model applied on a planetary basis. So just to connect the dots, provisionally for the moment, the ruling abstractions of man and nature did not precede They didn't come before, but they emerged through the praxis of planetary management that took shape through the genocidal and ecocidal appropriations beginning in 1492, but going through successive waves of development in which man and nature and civilizing projects, these ruling abstractions, are reinvented along a common thread with a specific aim of advancing the rate of profit. So we have these breakpoints, 1550, 1790, 1870, 1945, all marking moments of uh, development of imperialist projects, of civilizing projects. So cohering the man-nature dualism were precisely those civilizing projects, which all claimed that they offered the universalist possibility for man in the uppercase, the abstraction, man's full development, and therefore required the effective management of human populations that were variously designated as savage, wild, and irrational, in other words, as natural. Thus, the interlocking trinity of Prometheanism, that is, man over nature, sexism, man over woman, and racism, white over not white, in modern domination, historically fundamental to resolving recurrent crises of cheap nature and the pivotal labor food and labor care dialectics. We'll loop back to that towards the end. So, From 1492 onward, every great era of capitalist development saw the reinvention of nature and man as ruling abstractions, as a set of imperial, managerial, and geocultural claims about who and what would be cheapened, cheapened in a double register of price, but also devaluation, the valorization of capital and the devaluation of human and extra human life and labor go hand in hand. So this was always in the interest of sustaining a peculiar civilizational ecology committed to endless accumulation. Nature dialectically joined to man becomes this ruling abstraction that is itself an accumulation strategy. So these were the geocultural scaffoldings of modernity's cheap nature strategy, which at every point linked this valorization and devaluation, that is turning webs of life, human webs included, into profit-making opportunities and deploying scientific claims about so-called natural law as the justification for racism, sexism, and imperialism. So this means that when we're thinking about nature and the environmental imaginary after 1968, we have to situate it within a longer, dangerous, and violent history. That these most dangerous words signaled a succession of deadly practices. This master binary first took shape 
as modernity's guiding ideological project in the two centuries after 1492. And what we have seen ever since are a series of Christianizing, civilizing, and then after World War II, developmentalist projects. In these, the intellectual distinction between who and what was natural and who and what was civilized became a geocultural force. So the workings of the mode of production and the mode of legitimation are fundamental to the dynamics of class struggle and capital accumulation. And we see this materially entwined with the long-run capitalist remaking of the biosphere. So here, and I won't go into the nitty-gritty of, of the textual, but we can talk about this, is that I think Son Reddle can be joined very productively with not only the cultural materialism of Gramsci and Williams, which I think is widely appreciated, at least maybe in this circle, but also importantly with feminist Marxism and the black communist tradition of people like Du Bois, C.L.R. James, Claudia Dixon, uh, emphatically not black Marxism, which is anti-communist. And to join these threads of class race critique ideologically to understand that their taproot is bourgeois naturalism. That is the product of civilizing projects and the creation of an antinomy between man and nature knitted together by the civilizing mission. And so this is fundamental to understanding not only the extraction of surplus value, but also its necessary conditions of socially necessary unpaid work performed, as Maria Mies once noted, by women, nature, and colonies. So in this light, following Marx, geocultural abstractions, Marx and Engels' ruling ideas, may become material forces fundamental to class exploitation. Of course, for Son Reddle, the circulation of commodities in class society precipitates forms of abstraction in everyday life, and we can take this further. These abstractions both enable and obscure the class dimensions of the division between mental and manual labor. So keep the modern environmental imaginary, including today's, in front of you as we think about this. In this sense, real abstractions are not merely masks to disguise the bloody realities of class society. They are the prevailing common sense of Marx and Engels' ruling ideas. We can paraphrase Marx again to say that the widening and deepening of the cash nexus in class society sweats real abstractions from every pore. Uh, Alberto Toscano has been talking about racism. We can look at this in multiple realities, ideological, geocultural realities of the modern world. But I think there's an argument to be said that bourgeois naturalism underpins all of it. So such abstractions go beyond ideology as conventionally understood. They entangle directly and dialectically with modes of thought as the philosophical moments of modes of production, absolutely necessary to these modes of production. They enable specific forms of domination and surplus extraction. And implicit in this model, I think, is the suggestion that the greater the quantitative advance of circulation and therefore the greater development of class structures premised upon it, the more likely is the possibility for qualitative revolutions in real abstraction, extending well beyond the domain of circulation. Crucially, such an approach at least brings together in conversation the dialectics of the material, economic, and ideological domains within a unified world historical frame, something that, as Conrad suggested, is largely absent from eco-socialist thought, although eco-socialism is sufficiently broad and plastic that we uh, want to take care to avoid premature exclusions and narrow definitions. So again, as Conrad suggested, this line of thought has been developing from capitalism and the web of life forward. 
And my effort was to experiment with real abstraction and taking it beyond the circulation of value. And what I did essentially was to take the critique of commodity fetishism on offer from Son Reddle as a way to understand capitalism's civilizational fetishism and the emergence of these projects that create man and nature, the civilizing project, bourgeois universalism that rests upon bourgeois naturalism. So in this civilization and savagery, that was the language of early modern capitalism, emerges ruling abstractions through financialized imperial projects. The Iberians were a prime example of this, and they were committed to planetary management, metaphysical instrumentalism in the words of Orlando Betacor, and the expansion of commodity frontiers. Civilizational fetishism, what people refer to when they say society and nature, that's civilizational fetishism, is, in other words, the historical and logical precondition for the globalization of commodity fetishism. Commodity fetishism, of course, in one sense or another, is a characteristic of all class societies, but not in the globalized, uneven sense we find in capitalism. So this connects to an operative premise, which follows Giovanni Arrighi, Schumpeter, and many others, it's a critique of economism. And basically, it says that bourgeoisies are relatively powerless to establish the political conditions of a good business environment, or what I call the conditions of cheap nature, above all, the four cheaps of labor, food, energy, and raw materials. In other words, the bourgeoisie simply cannot accumulate surplus value on an ongoing basis without the legal and military force of empires which established the political framework for capitalist competition on the world market. The world bourgeoisie cannot, in turn, counteract the tendency towards a falling rate of profit without geocultures of domination and its ruling abstractions. That's why the civilizing project is always, always, always there. These not only suppress wages and consumption, but divide the world proletariat through sexist, racist, and nationalist abstractions always under the thumb of imperialism. And finally, such geocultures of domination are not only strategic to the super-exploitation of humans, but also through Prometheanism, the cosmology of man and nature, to the exhaustion of webs of life necessary to sustain endless accumulation, never mind the conditions of all of our lives. So what I tried to do since Web of Life is to connect precisely the ideological, material, ecological, and politico-economic within the long-term development of capitalism as a world ecology. I would say this is not a matter of abstract theorizing, and those people who try to reduce this line of thinking and research to abstract phrases and cherry-picking phrases have done us all a great disservice because the argument is really fundamentally over the world historical patterns of development, evolution, and crisis in historical capitalism. We are not going to be able to forge a revolutionary politics of climate justice without world history. World history cannot do everything, but without it, we are absolutely lost. So who and what the imperial bourgeoisie designated as nature and civilization is fundamental to understanding capitalism's drive towards climate crisis today. And above all, it's capitalogenic, not anthropogenic, capitalogenic, made by capital. It's capitalogenic trinity, the climate class divide, climate patriarchy, climate apartheid. These are, by the way, not the results of a geophysical rush towards climate change today. These are the causes of that climate change. This pattern of the climate class divide, climate patriarchy, climate apartheid, 
linking together class and ruling abstraction is an emergent phenomena of the 17th century. And we can get into why that's so, but one part of it is that the invasion of the new world led to the unprecedented genocide of American peoples, which in turn contributed to what the geographers Lewis and Maslin called the Orbis Spike, a dramatic decline in carbon dioxide concentrations between 1492 and 1610, which then reinforces other natural climate forcing activities or uh, mechanics in the world at that time to produce an, a profound climate crisis in this era of capitalist development, which is also why that's the moment of the hot housing of colonial productivist commodity regimes across the Atlantic world. So that historical perspective is fundamental to understanding how domination, ideology, class, and the environmental imaginary incubated during an earlier period of climate crisis and now today are going through a qualitative transformation, this turn towards the planetary inferno, towards hothouse Earth. In this light, an eco-socialism that relegates geocultural domination to the status of a secondary contradiction, rather than woven into the fabric of endless accumulation and the endless conquest of the earth, is one that accepts the economic reductionism of bourgeois thought, including vulgar Marxisms, and disarms movements for planetary justice. So this has allowed me to play around with the animating argument of, of capitalism and the web of life in terms of looking at what I called there the dialectic of project and process. So nature as a ruling abstraction is the conceit of the bourgeoisie, of the imperialist bourgeoisie, that it can do with the web of life as it pleases, that its capacity to control and dominate in order to advance the rate of profit to resolve accumulation projects is essentially unlimited. So this is the techno fantasies of people like Elon Musk today. This civilizing project has been with us all the way through, and it's a conceit that the possibilities for fixing capitalism's crises essentially don't have to be overly concerned with the web of life and its unruliness, which I would extend to human unruliness as well. It is a manager's way of looking at the world. So on the other hand, the social formations outside of capitalism that stared down the gun barrel of these civilizing projects were, with the stroke of the pen, redefined as savage, irrational, lazy, warmongering, animalistic, in short, everything that the civilized were not. Incidentally, this is also at the core of anti-communist ideology. The communists were savage and uh, silly and incompetent. So the upshot to all of this is that the ruling abstraction nature meant nothing without the others, civilization and man. And these civilizing projects in the minds of their practitioners represented the best that man had to offer. These redefined not just extra human life, but most human life as part of nature and treated accordingly. That's why Inestra King famously called civilization and nature a form of modern capitalist human sacrifice. This is at the root of the phenomena widely noted by Melissa Wright and many others of the neoliberal proletarian as the disposable worker, overwhelmingly brown, overwhelmingly female. That disposability comes out of this long history of ruling abstraction and the racist, sexist, and Promethean domination that capitalism and empires depended upon. And just to underline the point, 
today's popular Anthropocene and the work of many, many scientists who want to wander into the, the realm of the geohistorical, that is the realm of human history and human affairs, have carried with them the mindset of the colonizer, of the imperialist, reducing much as the Earthrise photograph that we saw cleansed the planet of relations of power, of political economy, of class struggle, they present the problem as a managerial problem. How to harmonize man under what the Anthropocene calls the great forces of nature. So is man overwhelming the great forces of nature? There is no more imperialist way of looking at the problem than that. And it makes sense because they're looking at it from the point of view of the manager. So in this sense, we have civilizing projects and the natures that they produce are not merely masking but enabling capitalism's underlying relations of power, profit, and life. This ruling binary has been fundamental to the dynamics of endless accumulation. And so we can never abstract the question of what counts as nature from the class struggle, not only over surplus value, but over the conditions of unpaid work. And that's really fundamental in an era of climate crisis. Now, why the enduring power of bourgeois naturalism in this sense? Well, one partial answer for sure is the first Malthusian moment of Thomas Malthus himself, who offers his famous theses on population, natural law, and social inequality in 1798, at least for the first time, during the world revolution of the late 18th century. And the era's revolutionary ferment was at that moment seemingly everywhere. The radicalization of the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the proto-socialist politics of Spencean radicalism within Britain, the anti-colonial revolts of Peru and Ireland. Everywhere, peasants and workers and artisans and others were in revolt, open revolt. And this was really at the core of Malthus's concern. So the thrust of Malthus's argument in this first Malthusian moment was to demonstrate that the problems of inequality were the result of natural law, not enclosure, not exploitation. And here we find the genesis of modern environmentalism's third way politics, which is really an anti-politics I'll talk about. It was here that we see an early statement of Margaret Thatcher's neoliberal mantra. There is no alternative. For everyone who's read Malthus's account of nature's mighty feast, this is a perfect example. There's nothing to be done. We just simply have to understand that scarcity is part of nature. So if we go from that first Malthusian moment to the second Malthusian moment in 1968, something very interesting is going on. So in 1968, there is not a worldwide biospheric crisis. There are environmental problems everywhere, but what else is new? There were environmental problems everywhere in the capitalist world before that. The narrative of the emergence of modern environmentalism turns on this year, these years of 68 and 69. In 68, Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb is published, published by, incidentally, the Sierra Club, one of the big green organizations in the United States, a fiercely anti-environmentalist organization for most of its life. And we need to understand that what was going on in this moment was nothing approaching an ecological crisis as we use that term today. There was no biospheric tipping point in play. There was, however, a worldwide revolution of uh, popular revolt, anti-colonial revolt, strike waves across the advanced capitalist world, 
And of course, the greatest uh, imperialist, anti-imperialist struggle of the, of the era, the Vietnam War. This is important to situate the emergence of post-1968 environmentalism, what's often called second wave environmentalism, as both a response to and a contributor to a new ruling abstraction of the environment as something that needed to be managed. So while environmentalism is is often narrated as a non-class social movement, and by the way, I'm not even sure it's a social movement, but we, we can get to that later, its emergence didn't have anything to do with a grassroots upswell of opposition. None at all. This was not like a labor movement. It was not like anti-war movements. It was not like the civil rights movements. It was a very, very different kind of dynamic. And what we saw during this era was something that was intimately connected with the long history of man and nature, civilization and savagery. In other words, what was and what was not an environmental problem in this decade after 1968 and ever since was cleaved by a pivotal division in the American working class. This was between, on the one hand, the so-called blue and pink collar workers, the manual workers, the waitresses and factory workers and secretaries and everyone else, and the white collar professionals, sometimes called the professional managerial class, which is useful heuristically, but not a class. But in any case, what we know is professional workers swelled during the post-war boom, and professional workers favored incrementalist and managerial solutions over the messy politics of radical democratization. Big E environmentalism after 1968 emerges as a crucial wedge to basically peel off hyper-educated professional workers from their flirtation with radical politics. And that's very, very crucial because we'll see the, the evolution, especially of American environmentalism, as a strategic force in the making of neoliberalism over successive decades. But in any event, what happened in this era was, following Paul Ehrlich, a redefinition of environmental problems as one of too many people. What kind of people? Well, brown, working class, poor people around the world. So nature emerged as a political category, indeed an anti-political category, to save the web of life from workers who were in the view of the environmental imaginary just as guilty as capitalists in producing the environmental crisis, which, as I've just made clear, didn't exist. Americans who suffered from the deadly political ecology of class exploitation, well, in this new environmental imaginary, they were shit out of luck. So excluded from this new environmentalist agenda, this is the violence, the danger of this real abstraction, ruling abstraction of nature. Excluded from the new environmentalist agenda were problems that devastated the industrial working class in the 1970s and 80s. This was Louisiana's notorious cancer alley, black lung disease by miners, the poisoning of farm workers, about a decade later, dramatized by Lois Gibbs at Love Canal in upstate New York, the anti-toxics movement led by working-class women like Lois Gibbs. These were boxed out of environmentalism. Indeed, all of these problems of toxification and pollution of working people in the United States, environmentalism supported the export of those environmental problems after 1968, Where? Well, of course, to the global south, where world proletarianization was occurring in this moment. And this speaks to the colossal 
failure, and we'll ask later if it was a failure, but to the colossal failure and inability of mainstream environmentalism to speak to the problem of climate change today. And it was built out in a series of successive accommodations with American imperialism, culminating in American environmentalism sabotage of labor's opposition to the North American Free Trade Agreement in the early and mid-90s, where the big green movement enabled the socio-ecological hellscape that followed NAFTA's approval in 1994. So this is no mere philosophical quibble. So the big question that's often asked, well, did environmentalism fail? And we can have basically two different approaches. One is, well, environmentalism struggled valiantly against the 1% and was simply beaten back because of the overwhelming power of the neoliberal counter revolution. And I think that applies to some individuals. I think it applies to working class environmentalism, which is today called environmental justice. But I don't think that it applies to the eco-industrial complex, not just the big green organizations, but the whole complex of the foundations, of the universities, of government ministries, of everything else. And so I think an argument can be made that big green environmentalism really took in a very robust way the neoliberal or proto-neoliberal ruling abstractions of the post-1968 world to heart and made it a pro-systemic ideological project from its inception. And what it did, sociologically speaking, was join imperial conservationism, a much longer history. And in American history, it's linked to people like Gifford Pinchot and Teddy Roosevelt in the early 20th century. It linked that resource management approach to a popular environmentalism of the professional and managerial strata that redefined environmental problems, not as class phenomena, but as man and nature, as non-class phenomena. So in this, specific environmental problems could be targeted, but not the extraordinary relationship between the centralization of capital, the concentration of capital, and the toxic effluence that drip from every pore of accumulated capital. In other words, the new environmentalism became, in a different way than he means it, but became the environmentalism of the rich after Peter Deverne. So what we want to be able to do is to situate this moment of 68 onward, 68 to 78, as the emergence of a second wave big E environmentalism and environmental imaginary still very much with us today that is specifically in response to not the environmental crisis, whatever that might mean, but to a quite material crisis that is the world revolution of 1968, the unprecedented revolt of workers, peasants, semi-peasants, semi-proletarians all around the world. And it was no accident that at precisely the moment where Martin Luther King Jr. is moving to link the anti-war civil rights and labor movements together, he's killed. And there is a series of movements, both of repression, but then also of like, look, here's a new environmental imaginary that Richard Nixon quite famously comes in and says in a second State of the Union address in 1970, says, hey, here's an issue we can all get behind, even if we disagree over all these other issues. At the moment that Nixon is engaging in the most brutal bombing of Vietnam imaginable, more bombs dropped on Vietnam than in all of World War II, saying, look, we can get on board with this new environmentalism. We can figure out how to put the genie back 
into the bottle. And so in this era, this is the moment of what's sometimes called the greatest demonstration in human history, the first Earth Day, which brought together about 20 million people. And first of all, it wasn't a demonstration. Second of all, it was not radical at all. And third of all, a week later, nobody ever talks about this, but this is the importance of these ruling abstractions. One week to the day after the first Earth Day on April 22nd, 1970, on April 29, under Nixon's orders, Arvin, the South Vietnamese army invades Cambodia. It's quickly backed by American air power, special forces and Marines. And this stirs up the greatest student in anti-war wave of demonstrations known to that point. So there was this fantastic Earth Day demonstration, so-called, and then the invasion and subsequent mobilization against the invasion of Cambodia and the subsequent mobilization against it. This is where Kent State and Jackson State's killing, the killing of students happened by National Guardsmen, ring in our uh, historical memory. And what we see is that the Earth Day infrastructure did nothing, nothing, nothing. So why is that important? Well, if it was a one-off, that's that's one thing, but it was not. And what we saw from that date on forward was a consistent nationalization of environmental politics and a progressive accommodation with imperialist politics. So as first George W. Bush comes into office, he proclaims he'll be the new environmental president. But then famously with the neoliberal Gore-Clinton move, what we saw was an ongoing recovery from what was called the Vietnam syndrome and this profound military activism that was building from Reagan, but then even more with Bush and then dramatically with Clinton Gore, who, uh, of course, Gore positioned himself as, you know, the environmentalist par excellence. Gore had already by 1984 moved to the right of the of, of the Democratic Party on the question of Vietnam. He said, no, in Vietnam, they wanted to be free and we should have supported them. I'm sorry that I opposed the war and then consistently moved to the right of Bush. In fact, Clinton and Gore both positioned themselves to the right of Bush on military adventurism in the 92 campaign and onward. So we have these two moments of the Clintonian free trade agreement and then Clintonian military activism, the expansion of NATO, military intervention in the Balkans, et cetera, et cetera, that environmentalists are completely, completely unable to deal with because they've made their bed, if you will, with the foundations, with the bourgeoisie proper. That's not a metaphor. I'm not just uh, sort of casting aspersions. The chief executive officer of Waste Management Incorporated, yes, it's as bad as it sounds, sat on the board of the million-member National Wilderness Fund in the 1980s and 90s, and that's not an exceptional moment. In the 90s, the journalist Mark Dowie said, well, if Reagan had realized how compliant mainstream environmentalism could be, he might have invited them more often to tea in the Rose Garden. So what's important about this discussion that I've just given you, the the, uh, compliance with imperial military activism and the, the support of free trade neoliberalism, is that it also occurs in the moment where global warming comes into the popular awareness. So George Bush is campaigning as the environmentalist president in 1988, right at the moment when James Hansen comes before a Senate committee 
in a moment of unprecedented heat waves and droughts in the American Midwest to put climate change on the agenda. It makes the front page of the New York Times and makes the lead story of the dominant news media when people actually watched the nightly news in 1988. And he appoints the uh, Conservation Foundation's CEO, William Riley, as head of the Environmental Protection Agency. So there's this deep and intimate relationship that continues, not just between big green and the billionaire class, but also between big green and the questions of empire, which are inscribed top to bottom in the politics or anti-politics, if you will, of the climate crisis today. So there's no way to deal with the question of climate crisis without confronting head on the problem of imperialism, both in the Luxembourg sense, but also in the Lenin sense of inter-imperialist rivalry. The limits to growth perspective of planetary management is really a kind of Kautsky and ultra-imperialist fantasy, which won't happen, but is interesting nevertheless. And so as a result, the anti-immigrant politics and the ethnocentrist politics, which have been there from the very beginning of second wave environmentalism, are still there today. So James Lovelock, progenitor of the Gaia hypothesis, says, well, let's build up the British Navy to keep out the dark skinned immigrant workers from Africa. You have E.O. Wilson with Half Earth saying, well, we need to enclose half the Earth to save the diversity of life. And this is very much part of the Anthropocene conversation. And by the way, you can all do your little homework if you're curious about this, but it's interesting to note that we have now been living with the Anthropocene discourse for 20 years. And I have searched in vain for any reference to America's forever wars, which overlap precisely with the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene discourse refuses to deal with the greatest threats to human and extra-human well-being on the planet, which is the military-industrial complex and the forever wars of the United States. There's more to it than that, but that's not a footnote to this story. So we have seen a wildly escalating set of climate violence, imperialist violence since this era, which the dominant environmental imaginary is not able to deal with. This is the power of bourgeois ideology. And so what we saw after 68 was not the result of a sudden grassroots upwelling of support to save nature, which, by the way, is a very condescending way to look at things. It reminds me of rich people who set up charitable foundations to help the poor rather than get rid of the problems of inequality. So it was, in my view, a pro-systemic contribution to riding the ship of bourgeois rule that was then in 1968 and into the early 70s in the thick of a legitimation crisis. So the new environmentalism took elements of the old, of preservationism and resource management, and combined that kind of longstanding elitism with a new anti-politics, a very pro-neoliberal, consumer sovereign, localist, individualist anti-politics of everyday life that very much resonated with professional workers in uh, what you can call in the United States context, the back to brunch crowd. Like, well, now that Biden is back, we can all go back to brunch because Trump was a fascist and horrible. Uh, Maybe. And so what was in earlier eras an imperial paradigm of science mapping and management after 68 became a paradigm of everyday life for you know the top 20% or so of the working class in countries across the global north. 
But while the explicit racism and imperial arrogance of the older systems of environmental management were sort of covered up, they're there under the surface, they were covered up, they were recast through an anti-politics of green consumption, of sustainable development, of eco-efficiency, and a new common sense of neoliberal rule. And environmentalism in this way uh, across the no global north offered a means of quieting the so-called new class, this, this emergent ballooning segment of the working class, the white collar working class across the 1970s. And it basically said that what the imaginary told us was that it didn't matter that what was being proposed fit into the modes of thought that had created the, the crisis and were deepening the planetary crisis, the modes of thought, the real abstractions, the core sort of ways of thinking. There was a lot of, of ink spilled and a lot of breath exerted talking about something called holism. But on closer inspection, well, all that holism meant was that we were going to deal with man and nature in the same frame. And that was going to occlude the class struggles that have brought us to the brink of hothouse earth. So if we wonder why environmentalism hasn't done anything to slow capitalism's rush to the planetary inferno, the answer is simple. It's because it was never supposed to do anything. Its accommodation to big capital and big empire was congenital. That's not to say that there aren't grassroots partisans that have struggled valiantly and heroically, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second. It is, however, to make the case that the basic ideological, moral, cosmological framework premised on the harmonization of man and nature, effectively foreclosed radical alternatives. And there were radical alternatives in the 70s, working class alternatives. Meanwhile, in the neoliberal era, those who have challenged the environmentalism of the rich have been fiercely repressed and big E environmentalism has not done much to help. When Chico Mendez organized Brazilian rubber tappers under the slogan, ecology without class struggle is gardening, he was killed for his efforts. The list of comparable figures is disturbingly long. For every Chico Mendez, Bertus Caceres, Ken Sarawiwa, there have been thousands of environmental-related killings across the global south, accelerating sharply after the Great Recession a decade or so ago. All right, so let's try to wrap this up. So we have these dangerous words, man, civilization, nature, these ruling abstractions forged across the centuries by the 1%. And these have held hostage our planetary imaginary for far too long. These are not only the most dangerous words in the language, they are organizing principles. That's why they're ruling abstractions. They are organizing principles of modern thought, power, and profit. They are fundamental to the accelerating planetary crisis, not just a geophysical crisis, but a crisis of the climate class divide, climate patriarchy, climate apartheid. And so insofar as we take the environmental imaginary as it is at face value, man and nature as the fundamental contradiction, hopelessness necessarily follows. If you've been hopeless about the climate crisis, this is part of the reason why. Maybe not the whole answer, but part of the reason. Capitalist power, capitalist history drops from the frame. In this light, the popular Anthropocene becomes the environmentalist variant of neoliberal dogma. There is no alternative. No wonder then that when glaciologist Jason Box lit a media firestorm in, in July 2014, when he said, tweeting about methane emissions under the ocean, he announced, 
we're fucked. Well, whether or not we're fucked is an open question, but within the man-nature cosmology, we can never be anything but fucked. Radical change is off the table, even as the climate crisis portends existential change. This is perhaps the ultimate cognitive dissonance behind today's environmental imaginary as it cracks under the weight of a climate crisis that day by day reveals as never before the connective tissues between the biosphere and the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. So this is in one sense a very complex argument, in another a very simple argument, and I think we need to tack back and forth between those different registers. But to go back to that Earthrise imagery, we need to look at the imaginary that it promotes, which is an imaginary that we are all in the same boat, we're all breathing the same air, and we all need to pull together as a team. It's a team concept mode of management. Now, why do I put it that way? Well, because from Spaceship Earth, Earthrise to Spaceship Earth to the popular Anthropocene, we are given a teamwork imaginary to work with. And this unfolds, of course, for those of you who have studied labor and the class struggle over the past 40 years, this was the dominant workplace management philosophy as well. And the Anthropocene advocates want to get away without somebody pointing that out. And so let's be clear that the advocates of bourgeois naturalism, the popular Anthropocene, are seeing the world like managers. So what if we recognize the history of capitalism in different terms? What if modernity is a history of putting extra human natures to work as cheaply as possible? And this speaks crucially to the core of the world ecology conversation. That's a conversation that views capitalism as a way of organizing webs of life, including the relations of class, capital, empire, geocultural dominations. And it really sort of takes a critical approach and reinvents the romantic environmentalist critique, which says, I think correctly, that modernity destroys pre-modern traditions of respect and reverence for webs of life. But that doesn't get us very far because romanticism will not suffice. It's an unduly partial critique because it doesn't ground itself not only in the proletarianization of human life, that is putting human lives and human natures to work as cheaply as possible, but also the creation of a bioterriot, that is of putting extra human lives to work as cheaply as possible, and then looking at the possibilities for revolt and revolution through that imminent critique. So in other words, what I want to say is that Prometheanism, like racism and sexism, is a logic not only of endless accumulation, but is also a logic of geocultural devaluation and disrespect. In other words, nature is modernity's N-word for the web of life. And we want to let that sink in, because what the environmental imaginary has told us is that we need to go save nature. No, that's not what we need to do. What we need to do is to look at the conditions of possibility for regenerating and renewing humans in the web of life and to discover and excavate the imminent contradictions of capitalist development as an ecology, as a world ecology of power, profit, and life. And to bring the questions of domination and exploitation of the accumulation of capital and the geocultural dominations of racism, sexism, Prometheanism, developmentalism together. We need to take seriously Marx when he is critiquing 
the labor theory of value. You remember that, right? In the critique of the Gotha program, he says, no, wealth is not only created by labor, it's also created by the rest of nature. And oh, by the way, labor is itself a specifically harnessed natural force. And what that does is it gets us out of a kind of Prometheanism, planetary manager way of understanding socialism. It moves the relationship of revolutionary socialist politics from seeing the web of life as something to be managed to seeing the web of life as a bioterriot in which there is a comradely relation of struggle and solidarity. That's really crucial because what we are looking at today, and this is where I'll, I'll close, you've all been extremely patient with me, is that we need to understand that the proletariat is only one part of the planetary proletariat that depends on the sources and delivery of socially necessary unpaid work. Remember that Maria Meese phrase that if you've seen me talk before, you've probably heard me repeat it, but it is the unpaid work of women, nature, and colonies. So what that tells us is that for every proletariat, there is a femetariat that shoulders the burdens of exploitation and domination in paid work and unpaid work at the same time. This is the problem of the second shift. And for the problem of the web of life, it is a process of pushing the web of life beyond its capacity to renew and regenerate itself. And lest you think I'm being an environmental romantic when I say that, basically my model And if you like, go and look at Web of Life and how I do this. My model is Marx on the working day. So when we talk about the limits to growth, a phrase I hate, or natural limits, we need to look not at the Malthusian way, but at the Marx working day class struggle way. And so this is really, really crucial if we want to move beyond a revolutionary socialist project that does more than say, well, here's nature and it needs to be loved and cared and sustained. There's a nature that's fundamental to work and that should not be regarded as negative, that human work can indeed be a condition of liberation, emancipation, and the full flowering of human possibilities. That is, of course, the communist horizon. So if we want to pursue a revolutionary politics of planetary justice, We need to link the labor question, the biosphere question, the question of reproductive justice together. We need to look at how the global bioterriot, femitariot, and proletariat fit together. So I would say just to close, environmentalists and Marxists alike have underestimated the bioterriot's contribution to the revolutionary destabilization of capitalism. And I can talk about this in very material specific empirical terms about what's unfolding today, if you like. But my point here in this talk is to say that the reason why both socialists and environmentalists have missed the bioterriot's revolt is because they are still very much operating within a civilization and savagery, man and nature framework. And what we want to remember is that revolutionary breaks often come dramatically and without notice, and we want to have a sense of the kinds of possibilities of planetary solidarity before us. How do we build a, an authentically bioterian socialism against the biospheric dictatorship of capital? And some of you might be uncomfortable because there are some things that I'm saying that resemble a romanticism. I don't think they are romantic. I think they're very concrete. And I think at the core of this is understanding that we are all living in what I call in Web of Life, the oikos, the creative, generative, and multi-layered pulse of life-making. And I think that that 
sensibility asks us to re-examine human solidarity, proletarian solidarity, with and within the web of life. Now, can we do so in ways that challenge the Promethean domination of life and explore the possibilities for multi-species liberation? Well, all I can do is to close with this. After Thomas Munzer, whom Marx was very fond of quoting, the creatures too should become free. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much for the talk, Jason. Uh, Wonderfully enriching and as expansive as usual. And um, right now I'd like to give the mic to the floor. If anyone has any questions for Jason. I just wanted to start off what I'm sure will be a whole series of questions, you know, from such a generative talk. And I'm asking my question in a kind of selfish fashion and hopefully not too trivial, but I'm in a media studies program, right? And in particular, the history that you define of 60s environmentalism being very much in cooperation with a certain kind of American imperialism, I I think is is very useful from a media studies perspective, right? If you think about the Sierra Club, Mm -hmm. of course, Garrett Hardin was the champion of the famous white supremacist enemy of the commons. This also sort of frames a time in public discourse where what's called media ecology develops, you know? So you get Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman, etc. We're still sort of suffering with this in our discipline <laughs> in the revival of media ecology in the previous decade, right? So I was just hoping you might reflect a little bit on that connection. And it becomes this time where all of a sudden in like very popular discourses about media, you can make claims, you, you know, you can use grand environmental immersion metaphors, extensions of the body, etc., you know, in McLuhan and Postman, etc., uh, you know, related to cybernetics, of course. I just wonder if you've thought at all about that particular connection. So it's also a time of tremendous media saturation, of course, in the U.S., like by 1960, 90% of American households have televisions, right? And these kind of global Earth Day events become big media spectacles. So I just wonder if you've thought how you might talk about that kind of connection between both a kind of evil media studies discourse <laughs> and, and just the, the birth of that particular capitalist media infrastructure. Thing. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's quite striking because if one dials back to 1970, Earth Day uh, led off the nightly news. It was on the front page of the New York Times. And indeed, in this period, 68 to 74, if you don't know this history, which I didn't really know very well beforehand, I thought, wow, this is really incredible. There's all of this like progressive environmentalist sensibility. And here's Gaylord Nelson, the the Democratic senator or and a Republican organizing Earth Day. Here's Richard Nixon. Under Richard Nixon's watch, we get all these environmental legislations. We get the EPA. But then this is not exactly in response to McLuhan, but it is to that wave in the 80s, the critique of media concentration, especially to Chomsky and Herman, but Bagdikian, Parenti, etc., where you begin to understand that this was very much a moment of manufacturing consent, that the corporate media propaganda complex seized on this moment to proclaim an environmental crisis that did not exist and seized on the moment to promote Malthusianism. The most famous example was that Paul Ehrlich, I think, was on the Johnny Carson Tonight Show back when, you know, a third of America watched it something like 23 times. I mean, just crazy. 
which is expressive. Okay, Johnny liked Paul. Paul was a good interview. But also, Paul was a good interview, back to the Chomsky point, because he was saying something that the ruling classes had long believed, had always believed. Indeed, in the year 1973, there were bills under consideration by 14 state legislatures that would have required women on welfare to receive welfare payments to be sterilized. That's not a one-off moment, but it's a dramatic sense of just how widespread this neo-Malthusian sensibility was. So anyway, I can go off on that, but just in terms of the media media ecology of it all, I think it's also, it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's also at this moment where you really start to see the first signs of the centralization of capital in a major way. So there's that wonderful confluence. Now, today we have a condition of decadence where they all want to run stories on Russiagate. You know, at least back then when they were manufacturing consent, there was something material, there was some material reality that could be pointed to around environmental problems. Okay, thank you. Now, I see that there is a question here, and the person says he's not able to switch on his microphone, so I'm going to read out the question. To engage in a revolutionary process of planetary justice, must we achieve a state of harmonious, deep ecology where the problems regarding bourgeois environmentalism or naturalism be addressed first? How may we go beyond dualistic ideas of nature man, animal man, and nature technology to achieve a post-humanistic, non-anthropocentric state of thinking where all dualisms are abolished? Well, to get there, we need a dialectical and historical materialism in the web of life. And so people relate to this label, deep ecology, in different ways. So what I'm going to say does not apply to you or necessarily apply to you. I don't, uh, but I want to say that deep ecology is very close to ecofascism. Deep ecology is very much rooted in a Heideggerian dwellingness. That's not an abstract point to make when we see somebody like Bruno Latour in Down to Earth and also facing Gaia, resurrecting not only James Lovelock, the racist, anti-immigrant, eco-fascist, but also calling as he does, as Latour does at the end of Down to Earth, for a defense of the European homeland. I'm not kidding. That's exactly what he says. That's, That's as direct a quote as I can make off the top of my head. So deep ecology has certainly in the United States, but in in other, as a descriptive term, white settler societies, not been a force on the left. By that, I don't mean that they've failed to realize their political projects. No, I mean, it's anti-working class. The best example of this is Earth First. Now, what's very interesting, and and I told this story about Chico Mendez, Ken Sarawiwa, when an Earth Firster, Judy Berry, made a labor turn a turn towards working class environmentalism at the end of the 1980s, the FBI bombed her car. So the ruling class does not fear deep ecology. And deep ecology also has unsavory links in the American context to anti-immigrant racist politics. The founders of Earth First, Edward Abbey. Edward Abbey was the one who made these racist comments in the 80s. And Foreman defended him. But if, if the question is not about deep ecology to the letter or deep ecology as a kind of anti-politics politics, but if the question is more about what are the revolutionary politics to realize oneness in the web of life and planetary multi-species justice, then I would say, no, deep ecology leads us in precisely the wrong way. It leads us to a, a bourgeois metaphysics, a kind of romantic metaphysics rather than a proletarian, bioterian standpoint of, of revolutionary 
practice. So you you trace, I think, very effectively why bourgeois ideology, despite the amassing of all this lip service and this kind of iconography of ecology and the necessity of saving all the charismatic animals and planet Earth and so on and so forth, why bourgeois ideology can't ultimately really address the web of life. With each step it takes toward trying to recognize the quote-unquote sort of larger ecology of man and nature, as you point out, it continues to preserve those dualisms because it, it can't, it needs to occlude the web of life that would overcome those dualisms. And I think you're offering a very good explanation for a certain kind of working class allergy to the language of saving planet Earth and ecology and so on and so forth. So again, this is a supplement to the previous question around eco-fascism and, and deep ecology. My question would be, how, how might you envision a toolkit of strategies and tactics by which to disarticulate that structure where bourgeois ideology as much as it tries to dismantle itself, it keeps deepening the kinds of dualisms that are getting us, that are causing us to create species suicide. So how, how would one delink the bourgeoisification of, of the sort of ecology lingo in order to restore it to its place where indeed, you know, the proletariat, women and nature are kind of just lumped together as so much de-differentiated stuff to extract value from. It might be a little unfair because I know you're not. It's not no, like no, actually, I would argue a campaign, but I would argue that they are that those, although they're a provisional heuristic, they're not a typology and they're not a sort of flattened typology. I don't know if that's, if I gave that impression, then I was in error. So if we look at these moments of proletariat, femitariat, biotariat, the femitariat is strategically positioned because the flashpoint of capitalism's class contradictions is socio-ecological reproduction, broadly understood, well beyond the family, well beyond the community. The struggle for planetary justice, for climate justice, the climate crisis is a crisis of reproduction. So there's that. The bioterriot obviously has a very different dynamic of revolt. I've called this elsewhere the superweed phenomenon, where webs of life as we have known them and capitalist control mechanisms as we have known them no longer work. In other words, the planetary manager can no longer make the workers do the work in the way that he wants them to. And then, of course, the proletariat, semi-proletariat, that's the normal state of the proletariat, of course, involves the cash nexus and, and wage forms of income. And these are all interpenetrating porous moments, but also distinctive. So I would argue precisely, I think this was the era of older ecofeminism in a way. I think it was also the era of a lot of environmentalism, that we need to understand these as a kind of differentiated unity of a, for lack of a better term, a planetary proletariat. The question where you started is really interesting. Why can't capitalism become this kind of multi-species, post-humanist entity ideologically that is expressed by those idiots at the Breakthrough Institute, right? Schellenberger and company. And people make comparisons between what they're doing and what I'm doing, which is just crazy because they don't actually look at what I'm doing. But the reason why capitalism can't do that, it can't dissolve the binary, relates to the last part of your question is that the pedestal of value and socially necessary labor time is socially necessary unpaid work. 
And those are obviously distinctive when we look at the femitarian and bioterian. Again, just as provisional heuristics, but I think that there's something there that we can play around with. Those are not, I'm not bringing those down from the mountainside in, in these etched tablets saying I found the answer. But I think that there's something that we need there that goes beyond a lot of fragmented accounts of the proletariat, social reproduction struggles of environmental struggles. They're also disconnected and the environmental concerns of, as you pointed out, are in scholarship, in political ecology are often anti-worker. Yeah. So we're also looking at the knowledge, right? We're looking at the world knowledge factory and the role of so-called critical intellectuals as well as mainstream ones in reproducing the dynamics of consent. So in a way, when we talk about this real abstraction of society and nature, what we're talking about is the division between bourgeois and proletariat as being directly involved in a certain sense in the process of exploitation or valorization and what lies outside it. And it's for this reason that a moment ago you were talking about some kind of relation you're referring to, to sort of between the femitarian and what you call the bioterian. And I think this is really interesting because I guess this is a question I struggled with in the thesis, um, which uh, Jason more recently was involved in my, my PhD supervision. It's, it's a question great. you probably... <laughs> Thank you. It's a question you probably noticed I struggled with. But so you're talking about, about deep ecology, and, and I completely accept all your points about the problems with it. But but I guess the issue is if we're thinking of sort of a dialectic from a kind of primitive communism in which there is, speak very generally, sort of animism, like nature was not treated as this unitary passivized thing, to a gradual binarization of society and nature that moves through many phases. I mean, I think Aristotle only compares juxtaposes fusis and techne like one time in his work. So it's not, you know, this is not what we get with capitalism, right? But but if we're talking about this, then I think the question becomes, in a way, if we're going to create this binary, I mean, it, it's very well established that, you know, there's a role to play in class struggle by people who aren't necessarily employed proletarians, right? So we could talk, you know, Federici, for example, will talk about the, the forms of resistance available to uh, social reproducers and so forth. But how do we talk about nature in that way? is potentially participating in the struggle. I'm sure you've encountered this question before. And of course, if I understand your work, in a sense, you positively evaluate an aspect of someone like Latour or Jane Bennett, but for you, they don't understand the material processes that are even producing their own work and their own capacity to generate these ideas. They're just going right to ontology. So it could be say that there are manifest forms of resistance in nature to capitalist appropriation, or do you think that would be going too far in terms of personifying nature sort of transgressing sort of the principles of the understanding or, or what do you you think about that, Jason? Well, I would say the web of life just to get us out from under man and nature, but certainly there is what I've been calling the revolt of the bioteria, which is an extension of my arguments about in web of life, what I term the superweed effect and the superweed effect was basically this that we saw specific in its specific sense. We saw, especially in GMO soy agriculture, soy is the neoliberal grain, the emergence of weeds. Let's recall that we a weed is a plant in the wrong place. There's nothing intrinsic about a weed, but we see the emergence of weeds that withstand the glyphosate, the Roundup Ready regimen. And the response then is a much more toxic cocktail of 2,4-D and other, other highly carcinogenic herbicides that don't, in fact, restore the crops to the status quo ante. The weeds, so-called, are engaged in a creative dynamic evolutionary response. And then I also highlighted as other elements of this, one of them, I didn't foresee the pandemic. I don't want to say that, but I did foresee 
the emergence of antibiotic resistance and forms of public health danger that would be fundamentally disruptive to capital accumulation. So those are the forms of creativity, evolutionary creativity, of what Levins and Lewinton, the great Marxist geneticists, call the dialectic of species and environment, that humans are, uh, and capitalism is creating an environment, but the environments are also creating us human beings, as we have learned over the past year and a half, are also environments for all sorts of life, including viral life. So there is indeed an, an intimate relationship of creative self-activity that confounds the logic of capitalism. And my term for this was negative value in the sense of the negation of value. So negative value emerges when capitalist control as usual no longer works, where that technological and organizational apparatus no longer can discipline the human or extra human life necessary to reproduce capital. So that is indeed what we're saying. I tend to avoid the word resistance, which is probably cuts to the heart of it, simply because in the neoliberal era, everybody said resistance, 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 like agency, agency, agency. And I want to be clear that extra human life does not have agency. Agency is a property of particular class relations and class projects with webs of life. And so it can be a negative example as when the climate, if the climate shifts, that is not the agency of climate that reifies climate. When the climate shifts, it induces changes in the sort of socio-ecological DNA of a mode of production, which, by the way, is why modes of production tend to enter profound political and economic crisis when the climate turns against them. And that's been the case for the past 2000 years, at least. So. We want to keep this the pulse of, of life-making, but in a dialectical sense, always at the heart of the matter, rather than reifying nature, which is what drives me crazy about the environmentalists and the critical environmental studies people. But then you have a labor fetishism that goes on where scholars want to talk about class struggle as if it's somehow separate from the webs of life. And that's absolutely false. And then your question is also about these ruling abstractions of, of civilization and savagery of, of society and nature and how those play into divide and conquer and super exploitation. So those are all wrapped up. But I think we have to push back against this sort of the metaphysics that we're seeing today that deny the power of bourgeois naturalism. We're seeing this especially with something that goes under the rubric of a kind of race reductionism or settler colonialism, where it's like there's just a kind of transhistorical badness that emanates out from some distant part of the European past, and it layers reification upon reification without ever identifying the concrete turning points. And bourgeois naturalism is involved in almost all of those turning points, the question about Federici, questions about the emergence of the world color line, so on and so forth. When I used to speak in the, in the past, like you do now to people, they found that there was no hope. I don't know why. I find the work of Marxists like J.K. Gibson Graham and their idea of um, like the phallocentric, they call it the capitalocentric. And one of their latest works, they talk about diverse economies and they've been working for 20 years and they, they don't even mention the word capitalism. And I think that that's the way forward for Marxist theory. You know, it's a colonization of the imaginary. We should just be talking about econo economic organization. 
and I don't know what you think of that. Well, I think I think that one can learn a lot from Gibson Graham. I think that they're very astute. I think that they're smart. I think that their scholarship is effective. And I think in the main, they're completely wrong. In the first uh, sense, they do talk about capitalism, but do so in an extremely Eurocentric and hidebound formalist way, that it all becomes wage labor. And then everything outside of that is not capitalism, which really has the effect of letting capitalism off the hook for what I call accumulation by appropriation, which is the extra economic uh, accumulation or appropriation of unpaid work. So even though they are, of course, feminist, I'm not questioning their feminist credentials, that lets capitalism off the hook for the way that concretely, historically, patriarchy and sexism actually work through bourgeois naturalism. I think also I have a lot of problems with their anti-statism, which translates very much into a a kind of left-wing version of Small is Beautiful after Schumacher from 72. And that's manifestly inappropriate for the era of climate crisis when every major city on the coastline will have to be moved inland, the sewer and water systems rebuilt, the electrical grids rebuilt, and under whose hegemony, the bourgeoisies or the proletariats? I realize that's a quaint way of saying it. And then finally, let's remember the long history of efforts to do precisely what you indicated. I think in the American context, one of the most famous examples of this was the work of Tom Hayden coming out of Students for a Democratic Society and the Campaign for Economic Democracy in California. And the thing is, everybody knows what you mean when you say economic democracy. You mean socialism, and the bourgeoisie will never let anyone forget it for a moment. And then finally... I have to remind myself of this as well, that socialism is not just about using state power to, say, rebuild the electrical grids in the era of climate change. It's also about the development of worker power. And that's what I find is sorely missing from Gibson Graham. After a century when workers, semi-proletarians, peasants have engaged in a series of sometimes successful, sometimes disastrous experiments in independence, which was always called socialism, but that's what it was. It was independence. They were met with, well, my favorite example is when Peter Arnett, the journalist, reported the U.S. Army major in February 1968 in the, in the Tet Offensive. We had to destroy the village in order to save it. And that's also the story of Earthrise, that American strategy from the beginning was we are going to develop the infrastructure to win a, a nuclear war against the Soviet Union. And the Soviets knew it. And the Chinese knew it. And every, I mean, everyone knew it. So we have to be brutally honest about what's happened to independent nationalist projects, whether they call themselves socialist or not. Look at Iran today. That what's, what's the response? Well, we're going to try to destroy you. We will, we will destroy you. Khrushchev said we will bury you, but he didn't mean it in the way that the West did. Okay, so I'm going to ask one more. Since you're touching a little bit here on, on state formations, I want to ask you a question. And I think, it, you know, it's so important uh, in terms of our global situation now that, that in these kind of conferences, we take the time as well to talk about China, which is, you know, quickly becoming such an important nation. And a very complex question for Marxists, obviously. I know in China recently, uh, there's been a lot of headlines because they've made very, very relatively bold commitments in terms of climate change. I believe Xi Jinping said that there will be zero emissions by 2060, if I'm not mistaken, and zero increase by 2030. And in a sense, obviously, China has an incentive to pursue alternative energy strategies, because I think they anticipate that they're not going to be allowed to develop 
in the same way the West has, right, because of global pressures surrounding this issue. Nevertheless, these decisions have evinced mixed responses. Obviously, in some sense, it's positive, but some doubt the credibility of them, particularly given China's ongoing status as sort of the global factory. How credible do you think these pledges are? And do you think it's it's possible that China could play a significant role in leading towards a new sort of global ecological dispensation? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I don't have a crystal ball. But that said, I think, well, I think several, several things. First of all, even if we take uh, Xi Jinping at his at face value, and even if they do succeed, that will not decarbonize the atmosphere. And it will not be sufficient probably to stop the feedback mechanisms of demethanization, et cetera. So the question really, in my view, is what kind of post-capitalist strategy does that represent? And Ben said, well, people get hopeless. People get hopeless because of bourgeois ideology, because bourgeois ideology tells us to be hopeless. That's the first thing I would say. If we look at the history of dramatic climate change, very, very minor by the scale of what we're going to see over the next decades, but dramatic climate change from the collapse of the Roman West all the way to the crisis of feudalism, to the crisis of the 17th century, dramatically unfavorable climate changes in more or less the temperate north of the world are profoundly destabilizing to ruling classes. Capitalism really only survives in the 17th century out of that climate crisis because it achieved a climate fix by going to the tropical and subtropical zones of the world and establishing a new productivist dynamic based on silver mining, sugar enslaving, uh, shipbuilding, and other commodity activities across this zone. So it's important to recognize that climate really does change everything. As scholars, as intellectuals, as comrades in an ideological struggle, we need to really radically rethink how we're treating the resilience of capitalism. Because in contrast to the limits to growth era, here there really is a biospheric tipping point. And it's quite dramatic. And we are already seeing the impacts. For capital, it will be felt in rising instability and rising instability in the accumulation of capital which is already there, and we're already seeing it in multiple registers, but especially in the stagnation of agricultural productivity and the end of the capitalist agricultural revolution model. So what does this have to do with China? One way to interpret this is that the Chinese leadership sees this moment as an opportunity to advance a program for world leadership that would lead to a kind of tributary capitalist, not tributary, but tributary post-capitalist system in which politics would be in command but there would still be proletarians, there would still be markets, there would still be all many of the surficial accoutrements of capitalism, which, by the way, that was the case with feudalism and with Song China as well. There were bankers, there were markets, there were merchants, there were work proletarians, there's cash crop production. So one way to look at it in your terms is a kind of bid for world leadership to navigate a tributary solution that would favor China under Belt and Road, et cetera, et cetera. And seeing that the U.S., what does the U.S. have at the end of the day? It has a military industrial complex. And so it has a global capacity for wielding force. That's why the U.S. is ready and has been involved already, but is ready to engage in full-on military interventions in Africa and elsewhere, right? I mean, that's that's directly in response to the to the Chinese. So we're back to the Lenin problem, but in an era of climate crisis. So we need to ask, where are the weak links in the capital, the imperialist chain, the capitalist chain? 
Okay, yeah, and I think it's interesting actually this because this relates a bit to San Rethel because he um, he talks about the Chinese uh, afforestation projects that occurred during the Cultural Revolution, right? And he's sort of oh, this is pointing to a new sort of ecological consciousness. But we see that that kind of slid off the rails. But hopefully, some well with the counter revolution there, and I don't like to use that term lightly, but the Maoist experiment was was quite extraordinary. And it's it, I just have to add this footnote because everybody says, well, the Soviets and the Chinese were just as bad. The Soviets and Chinese were not just as bad, first of all. At the high point in 1972, they were 13% of GDP, and that's only because Soviet oil sold at, at overinflated prices. And yes, there was a Prometheanism. We know, all know the stories. Raj and I tell some of them in, in Seven Cheap Things of let's kill all the birds, that kind of thing, and that causes problems. Okay. But what the Soviets did say with the RLC was a tenth of what the Americans and British and other imperialist powers did all across the world, all the time, everywhere for centuries. And let's also just point out that the greatest single contribution to the well-being of humans and the rest of life in the 20th century was the destruction of Nazism. Mm -hmm. So these are thought crimes even on today's so-called left. We cannot say anything positive about any independent nationalist project in the 20th century. It's forbidden, especially if they happen to raise the red flag. And raising the red flag doesn't seal your borders from the rest of the world, as the Chinese and Soviets knew, as even Kim Il-sung recognized. He said the law of value catches up with you eventually. So that's the only time I've quoted Kim Il-sung. In the, you know, <laughs> in, in, but, uh, but he was he was right. I mean, eventually it's, you're not insulated from the rest of the world. And then also what I'm saying is that there's this difficult thorny problem of Prometheanism. We can criticize the Soviets, we can criticize Evo Morales and Moss, we can criticize these projects, but staring down the gun barrel of the imperialist powers means that one needs to make extremely unpalatable moral and political choices. And I don't pretend to be a fount of wisdom when it comes to that, but I find that that, that just the recognition that building socialism, not as easy as it looks, is profoundly missing from a lot of these discussions. Okay. Thank you very much, Jason, for this, this wonderful- Thank you, interview. Conrad. Thank you, everyone.